Now, if you take a good look at the calendar, now we are fast approaching the final month of 2023. Now, given the fact today, when we look at this geopolitical change and so much has happened during this entire year, we'll look at the war in Ukraine and also the current war in Israel. We'll look at this political polarization in many countries. But meanwhile, we also need to understand that post pandemic, somehow when we get to the word emotion or you get to the word feelings that play a major role in our life today, it's not just about how we feel. It's really more about our own interpretations about those feelings. Now, as humans, we have to admit that there are some good days and there are some bad days. But in reality, how should we understand those negativities or even should we say the disappointment and the bad feelings? Now, you might be interested knowing that some scholar believe that those bad feelings that we experience on the daily basis are actually something good that can help us to turn into positivity. And don't get me wrong, this is not a crazy idea. As a matter of fact, and we need to understand negativity, it's only part of life. But how should we understand from this more philosophical standpoint, instead of looking at, at this uh, from this therapeutic or psychological aspect? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, and who is Professor Krista Thomason. Again, Professor Thomason is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Swarthmore College. Again, she's the author of a brand new book. It's called Dancing with the Devil, Why Bad Feelings Make Life Good. Well, Professor Thomason, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Professor Thomason, I want to get started right away. You know, again, this is something that you also mentioned in the book. When we talk about human feelings, and regardless is positive or negative, it's not just about how we feel. It's about the interpretations of those feelings. You are a associate professor of philosophy. You are not a psychologist, and you are not a therapist. And also, you mentioned in the book. What can philosophers do to help us with our negative emotions? Let's start the question right there, Professor. What do you say to that? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, it, there's actually a long history in philosophy of thinking of philosophy as a kind of therapy. Mm. So this is an old tradition. There's lots of ancient philosophers who think this is true. There's Renaissance philosophers who think this is true. Even 18th century, it goes a, a long way. And the, the thought is that, um, you know, in the course of a normal human life, mm. we experience all kinds of challenges and questions about how to live well. Mm. And sometimes those questions are fit for a therapist when you feel like you're not flourishing and you feel like, um, you know, you can't really go on with your life in the way that you want to. But a lot of times those questions don't rise to the level of needing professional help, but it doesn't mean you don't need someone to help you think about them. Mm. And so that's the role that philosophy has. We're there in the place where you're at just facing these normal challenges that every human being faces about how to live well and how to find meaning in their lives. Um, and they may not need a professional to talk them through that, but they may need somebody who thinks a lot about how to live and uh, what makes life meaningful. And that's what philosophers have been doing forever. 
Mm. You know, Professor, when we talk about to make life more meaningful or even say more contributive to others, I know in your book that you devoted a good amount of information regarding、uh, a figure or a, a type of figure is called a saint. You know, whether that related to religious figure or some type of supernatural beings. But this is the definition that, again, from Orwell. I mean, we know that this is a well-known author, and of course, he lived this life. Now, I want to read something to you and help us with better understanding. And it's and you wrote, and I quote: "Sometimes a good life means a morally good life, a life devoted to making the world a better place." Helping as many people as possible, saving the planet, having an exemplary character, etc. So, professor, from your perspective, again, how should we understand the feelings, especially the negative feelings? Does that mean that when we are, say, being surrounded or consumed with the negativities, we need to do something good? And so that we can get rid of the negativity, or to find fulfillment in our life, what do you say to that? Yeah, that's a great question. So,、uh, so actually, no. <laughs> so I'm the one who says that you don't necessarily have to、uh, try to do something to get rid of your negative feelings. I think that's the very common response that people have,、mm. and they have that response for a, a large variety of reasons.、Uh, we, you know, bad feelings have a really bad reputation, and、uh, we live in a in a world where those feelings are not necessarily welcome. And so, when you feel them, I think people feel. Bad about themselves, and they judge themselves harshly for feeling them, and so they they sort of look around and say, "Oh, I got to get rid of these feelings."、Um, the feelings are also not necessarily pleasant to experience. They're they're difficult. They can be challenging. They can take a lot of energy,、uh, and they're not necessarily fun. So I, I think there's a we have a lot of temptations or, or tendencies that sort of push us in this direction of saying, "Oh, well, you can't feel these feelings for too long because if you do, something's wrong or something bad is going to happen," and so you need to channel them and. Something productive,、um, and that's actually a, a conclusion I want to resist.、Uh, and I think part of it is because we don't know particularly well how to accept that negativity is actually just a part of our normal life,、um, and we are we're sort of sold on this idea that that a happy or good life is a life that doesn't have any negativity in it. And so part of what I want to do in the book is get people to maybe rethink that and think that actually.、Uh, Having negativity in your life is a normal part of life, and it's a normal part of a good life.、Mm. You know, Professor, when we talk about again going back to the word emotion or feelings. I have to say that this year, or even previously during the pandemic, when the world was isolated, I think we were learning to reinterpret or to reunderstand the word feelings and emotions because we were so isolated. And even though, you know, ironically speaking, we live in a community or we live under the same roof, but it was rather difficult for us to understand the presence and even the interpretation of emotions. Now. Post-pandemic, professor. Again, from your perspective, according to the book, how much do you think that today we actually gain the recognition of the feelings, or we really understand why we feel 
in a certain way towards certain matters? Is there positive or maybe in the, say in the midst of crisis? And also this is something you wrote as well in the book. It says emotions are also reflections of what we care about or what matters to us. Do you think today we are more vulnerable towards crisis or towards negativity? Or you think that because the pandemic, we actually grew stronger, you know, actually to quote the cliche, it's what doesn't kill us make us stronger. Well, what do you think of that? That's a great question. Yeah, the pandemic was, I actually think it was a real moment when um, the the sort of positivity kind of veneer that I think a lot of people had tried to create in their lives where, you know, I think up until that point, I think people were very susceptible to sort of, you know, what you might think of as like a social media kind mm. of life where you post pictures of your vacation and everyone thinks your life is wonderful and everything is fine. And so you, you we got really used to kind of putting up this front about how our lives were always going well. And I think the pandemic finally... Um, put a lot of cracks in that facade and it did really force people to live through an extended period of time with a lot of negative feelings with a lot of fear with a lot of isolation with a lot of loneliness with a lot of discomfort and so I think for the that that might have been the first time in some people's lives where they've ever had to do that where they've ever had to sit with that much negativity for that long and I think some people did come out of that really feeling like they had kind of reflected on that and and figured out how to live with that sort of discomfort mm -hmm. and sort of realize that they don't have to put up this kind of happy face all the time. But I think there might also have been maybe equal numbers of people who didn't have an opportunity to reflect on their emotions. They just didn't know how to live that long with that many negative feelings. And and they just, they just sort of like muddled through it somehow or denied it or did, I don't know, a whole, a whole bunch of different strategies and and i think coming out on the other side of it i think maybe what we're seeing is um i think that really i think the pandemic might have given people a moment where things seemed very uncertain and they needed some kind of reassurance mm. and i'm not sure everybody feels like they've sort of gotten that reassurance back mm. so it seems like maybe we're in a moment where we we sat with a lot of negativity for a long time but now i think we're sort of um rather than thinking right this is part of what it means to be a human in the world is to have these kinds of you know dramatic ups and downs sometimes uh, i think some people that sort of shaken their ability to see kind of the positive. So I think there's some people who are tending much more toward negative feelings in part because they've sort of, it's almost like the pandemic kind of broke an illusion that they had about the way life actually is. And now they sort of see that these really terrible things can happen and you have to sort of confront, well, what do you do now? Now that you know that that's true about life, that this kind of thing can happen. How do you then make meaning in a life that you, where you know these sorts of things can occur and I think I think that's a space where people are needing some help thinking about mm. how to do that what do you think the correlation between emotion and maturity you know we always tend to say let's say as life goes on and the person grows much older we tend to believe or we tend to hold the assumption that age really brings maturity but sometimes it's not really the truth 
I mean, we're looking at children, especially the younger generations, who might not be as old as the previous generation, but because of the circumstances and because of the experiences that everyone experiences differently, and this person seems more mature sometimes even than adults. So uh, help us again from this philosophical standpoint, what is the relationship or what is the correlation between maturity and emotion for human beings in general? I mean, it's not just about the pandemic. It's not just about the complexity or the fabrics of the society. It's really something more than that. What would you say that, Professor? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I think that I think sometimes people get the mistaken impression that in order for you to sort of be a mature person, you have to control your emotions, right? Mm. And at a certain level, that makes sense because mm. you look at, you know, small children and they have a kind of like wild emotional life mm. and they throw a fit over everything. And you think, well, that's not what grown up people do. That's not how we should behave. So it must mean we have to sort of learn to control our emotions. The way I like to put it is it's not so much about control because I think... I think we actually lack quite a bit of control over our emotions. We have, we think we have a lot more of it than we do. Um, so it's not so much about control, but I always think about it as developing a good relationship with your emotions. Mm. What if you imagined your emotions were sort of like another person mm. that you had to get to know over the course of a certain amount of time and you had to spend time with them and observe them and really try to understand them so that you can know how to develop a relationship to them. I think that's a better way way of thinking about how a mature person relates to their emotions. So it's not so much when we're when we relate to other people, we don't try to control them. We, mm. we often think that's not a healthy way to relate mm. to other people. So if we thought about our emotions as in the same way we relate to another person, the way that you would do that is to sort of get to know that person and develop a relationship with them. So that's the kind of thing I would encourage people to do. I think mature people have a good relationship to their emotions. Mm. Professor, do you think today that we actually have time or or have the energy or even the word capacity to understand our emotion feelings. I mean, again, because I mean, this is going back to the title of your book. It's why bad feelings make life good. And I think sometimes we are so busy and we are so occupied that we don't even recognize either the feelings are positive or negative. You know, we, we try to find a substance, a substance where we try to find a temporary, we'll say, a replacement to overlook or ignore the presence of the feelings. So do you think that today we actually have the energy, have the capacity to understand the presence of the feelings? What do you think? I think that's I think that's right. So I think there is a, I actually have a real concern about this about the amount of time we're sort of spent, you know, uh, people's lives, people's hours and people's days are just eaten up by so many things. Mm. Um so so I think that's right. I think we actually do uh we we often don't find ourselves in moments where we have the opportunity to reflect about things. However, I will say I think this kind of activity happens to people whether they have time or not mm. um and it happens because life happens to you mm. and uh you know the fact that so one of the arguments i make in the book is the reason that people the reason that you feel negative emotions is because your life matters to you you care about your life and so when you care about something your emotions show that you care about something so the fact that i care about philosophy for example um i'm going to be really excited and happy when i get to go to a philosophy conference i'm going to be angry and upset when people say bad things about 
about philosophy. Mm. Both of those feelings are showing that I care about philosophy. It's just that we typically think of the positive emotions first rather than the negative emotions. So I think because people are, they're invested in their lives. They they have jobs that they love or, or that they struggle to love. They have family members that they love or struggle to love. <laughs> um, because you have that, when things happen in your life, emotions are going to happen and you're going to be faced with this, um, you're going to be faced with sort of a whole suite of emotions and you're going to be put in a situation where you have to sort of deal with them and there they are. They're going to show up whether you want them to or not. And so I think because everybody experiences that in their lives, um, if you have some free moments to sort of think about it before it happens, probably better to sort of get a chance to reflect on this so you can read a book, right, about it and have some <laughs> thoughts about it before you, you know, before a crisis hits and you're sort of forced into this situation of figuring out how to live with these feelings. Professor Thomason, I want to go back to your book. Again, I particularly enjoy the story that you shared. You step into a bookstore and then you pick up a book, but it's not really about the book. And then correct me if I'm wrong, it's actually a, a bookmark or maybe a, sl a slip of paper that fell on the floor. And eventually that brought you to this chapter that you mentioned that people sometimes know us better than we know ourselves. Now, Professor, I am not a fan of knowing more about dead people. I mean, again, I mean, as much as I mean, as a journalist, I study history. And also, you know, as a graduate student, I'm sure that we went to a lot of cemeteries and, you know, visit those significant, you know, deceased, the famous figures and etc. But when I came across this statement that dead people sometimes know us better than we know ourselves, it brought chills to me. And so I really have to ask that question. What is the philosophical logistic reason behind that? And why do you think it's so important to put this such critical concept in this book when we talk about feelings, emotions, positivity or negativity? Walk us through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, so I am trained as a historian of philosophy. So I love reading old dead people. That's what I do with most of my time. Um, and I and I, I encounter this question all the time. Well, why should we do that? Why is that valuable? Who cares what someone, you know, thousands of years ago said? Um, and the way I, I like to put it, I actually, I love that um, there's a 19th century philosopher named uh, Anna Julia Cooper mm. who was born into slavery. And when slavery was abolished, she managed to get an education and so she writes very movingly about the value of an education and the one that she's talking about is an education that involves reading lots of dead people mm. and so what's what is the value of that to a woman and to a former slave someone who was denied that thing she says it's access to what she calls a charmed circle of mm. friendship and so she looks at all of these people, all of these long dead authors as a really rich intellectual resource for you. So I, as being a historian of philosophy, I think the questions that we face as human beings, they're not new. Human beings since the beginning of time have faced these kinds of questions about how to live a good life and how to find meaning. And lots of people have written about their thoughts about mm. those answers to those questions. So I think we can get a head start on our own answers when we run into these same questions. If we go back and read the experiences of the people who happened, 
who lived before us and had some of the same questions. It's very helpful, especially to read people who are very unlike you, who lived in a very different time period, who lived in a very different place, because they have a perspective that you may not have thought about. And yet here, because they've written this stuff down in a book, that perspective is available to you in that in a way that it wouldn't have been, you know, thousands of years ago. So I think of reading dead people as this really rich intellectual resource for us. And if I want, it's almost like having a whole group of people you can go to for life advice. If you would like it, um, and they have all sorts of life advice to give. So I think of it as as that's actually a really valuable thing for people to be able to read these these perspectives that are really really different from their own, and learn that we can learn from them about about the things that that we think about our lives. It's mm, a really good reminder, Professor. I got two more questions before letting you go. Now let's talk about another critical term that today we are using, especially within this academic. Or in a business field, it's called emotional intelligence. You know, we, we, I, mean, I think initially when those two words came out, and we understand them separately. You know, we understand the word emotion, we understand the word intelligence. But today, especially when we are looking into social networking, you know, either online or offline, too often that we have this demand to understand and also appreciate this emotional intelligence. So from your perspective, Professor Thomason, how should we understand the correct definition of emotional intelligence? And why do you think that term is also related to your book and even to the content that bad feelings or negativity actually can make life much better or more prosperous? What do you say to that? That's great. Yeah, there's actually, I think there's really two things that we might mean when we say emotional intelligence. One is um, knowing things about your emotions is a kind of intelligence, mm -hmm. meaning it's worth knowing. It's worth knowing things about your emotions. I think the other thing we typically mean when we think of emotional intelligence is knowing your emotions well, having a kind of intelligence about them. And so it's that second piece that I think is probably the most important for the book because it is about, um, there's, this, there's a psychologist and a philosopher whose name is Lisa Feldman Barrett. And she has this great term that I love called emotional granularity. Mm. And uh, the term, what she means by that is you understanding your emotions is kind of like, um, you know, the, the color wheel, there's yes. a bunch of different kinds of colors, yep. right? And they have, there's like a million different shades of red, right? Sure. Um, somebody who doesn't have a particularly sophisticated understanding of colors will just look at all of those shades of red and say, those are red. Mm. But if you have an intelligence about colors, then you'll be able to say, oh, well, that's vermilion or that's burgundy or that's mm. garnet or that's right and you have a bunch of different ways of talking about it. you can tell all the subtle differences between the different kinds of reds so lisa feldman barrett says we should do that with our emotions we should be able to say oh this is kind of like frustration i'm not really angry i'm just frustrated or i'm sort of disappointed about this or i thought i was mad about this but actually i think i might be afraid of it um or maybe i'm feeling a little bit of disgust right now and i'm not sure why or 
well, I'm mad, but I'm not irritated, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so I think that's, so for me, that kind of emotional intelligence is really important for figuring out how to live well with our negative emotions. Cause I think we have to get to know them and understand the role that they're playing in our lives in order for us to see why they're valuable. I think also it's another matter is recognition. Again, it's not about putting those feelings away in a box and just say, all right, I'm going to deal with those feelings later on. Because again, you know, as, as life goes on, it's something that you just have to deal with where we have to face the music one point or another. There's no avoidance and there's no escape. Now, Professor, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking you the last question. Again, your book is called... Dancing with the Devil, Why Bad Feelings Make Life Good. So for anyone who is still on this um, offensive side to say, well, you know, I don't know if uh, those bad feelings are going to make my life easier or is going to make my life better. So let's just say for anyone that who is not familiar with those terms and who is not familiar with emotional intelligence or everything we just talk about, what would you expect the readers to understand when they finish reading the last chapter or even the last page of of your book your final thoughts professor yes i think uh what i really want is for people to rethink the picture that they've developed of what a good life looks like mm. and i think the picture that we typically have of a good life is one that is the best kind of life is one that is free from pain from fear from anxiety from any kind of discomfort if we can manage that that's the best version of a life we can have and what i want people to rethink is that idea that maybe that's not the best version of a, of a human life maybe the best version of a human life is one that actually does have in it some negativity, some pain, some fear, some anxiety, and that that life is overall actually more meaningful, it's richer and more interesting than a life where those negative things don't happen. Mm, I think also that's a good reminder. You know what we say, it's we cannot control what happened to us, but one thing we could control, it's our reaction towards the unknown, towards the unexpected circumstances. And of course, they borrow, you know, the line from the song, it's what a wonderful world we're living today. You know, even though we see a lot, not a lot of negativity, you know, geopolitical speaking, we'll look at social up and down. But again, at the end of the day, it is a wonderful life. And I hope that when people finish reading your book, Professor, we also can acknowledge that those negativity and bad feelings can help us to grow, not only strong but also better. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Professor Krista Thomason. Again, Professor Thomason, it's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Swarthmore College, and I strongly encourage everyone to go online and connect with the professor and also check out her new book. Again, it's called Dancing with the Devil, Why Bad Feelings Make Life Good. Well, Professor Thomason, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoy the conversation. Love to have you back on the show as we continue to follow all the works and also understand not just the emotion, but also about mankind and also the human relationships. So thank you so much for doing this.